Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse, Volume 7, Chapter 22. It was one seeing that blasted statuette that it seemed as if Stiffy had suddenly exhibited a snake of the lowest order. I gazed at the thing appalled. It needed but this to put the frosting on the cake. Where did you get that? I asked in a voice that was low and trembling. I pinched it. What on earth did you do that for? Perfectly simple. The idea was to go to Uncle Watkin and tell him he didn't get it back unless he did the square thing by Harold. Power politics, don't they call it, Jeeves? Or blackmail, miss. Yes, or blackmail, I suppose. But you can't be too nice in your methods when you're dealing with the Uncle Watkins of this world. And now that Plank has eased the situation and made our path straight, of course, I shan't need it. And I suppose the shrewd thing is to return to the storeroom before his absence is noted. So, go and put it in the collection room, Bertie. Here's the key. I recoiled as if she'd offered me the dog Bartholomew. Priding myself, as I do on being a chevalier, I like to oblige the delicately nurtured when it's feasible, but there are moments when only a nola prosequi will serve, and I recognize this as one of them. The thought of making the perilous passage she was suggesting gave me goose pimples. I'm not going near the ruddy collection room. With my luck, I'd find your Uncle Watkin there, arm in arm with Spode, and it wouldn't be too easy to explain what I was doing there and how I got in. Besides, I can't go rummaging around the place with plank on the premises. She laughed one of those silvery ones, a practice to which, as I have indicated, she was far too much addicted. Oh, Jeeves, tell me about you and plank. That's very funny. I'm glad you think so. We personally were not amused. Jeeves has always found the way. If you will give the object to me, miss, I will see it is restored to its place. Thank you, Jeeves. Well, goodbye, all. I'm off to find Harold. Said Stiffy, and she withdrew, dancing on the tips of her toes. I shrugged a shoulder. Women, Jeeves. Yes, sir. What a sex. Yes, sir. Do you remember something I said to you about Stiffy on our previous visit to Totley Towers? Not at this moment, no, sir. Was that the occasion when she landed me with Police Constable Oates's helmet, just as my room was about to be searched by Pop Bassett and his minions? Dipping into the future, I pointed out that Stiffy, who is pure padded cell material from the foundations up, was planning to marry the Reverend H.P. Pinker, himself as a pronounced a goop as ever preached about Hivites and Hittites and I speculated if you recall as to what their offspring, if any, would be like. Ah, yes, sir, I recollect now. Would they, I asked myself, inherit the combined loopiness of two such parents? Yes, sir, you were particularly concerned, I recall, for the well-being of the nurses, governesses, private schoolmasters, and public schoolmasters who would assume the charge of their children. Little knowing that they were coming up against something harder than mustard. Exactly. The thought still weighs heavily upon me. However, we have at leisure to go into the subject now. You better take that ghastly object back where it belongs without delay. Yes, sir. If it were done, when twere done, then twere well it were done quickly. He said, making for the door, and I thought, as I had so often thought before, how neatly he put these things. Seemed to me that the time had now come to adopt the strategy which I had had in mind right at the beginning viz. to make a getaway by the window. With Plank at large in the house and likely at any moment to come winging back to where the drinks were, 
Safety could be obtained only by making for some distant yew alley or rhododendron walk, and remaining ensconced there till he had blown over. I hastened to the window accordingly, and picture my chagrin and dismay on finding that Bartholomew, instead of continuing his stroll, had decided to take a siesta on the grass immediately below. I had actually got one leg over the sill before he was drawn to my attention. In another half jiffy, I should have dropped on him as a gentle rain from heaven. I had no difficulty in recognizing the situation as what the French call an impasse, and as I stood pondering what to do for the best, footsteps sounded without, and feeling that twere well it were done quickly, I made for the sofa once more, lowering my previous record by perhaps a split second. I was surprised as I lay nestled in my little nook by the complete absence of dialogue that ensued. Hitherto all my visitors had started chatting from the moment of their entry, and it struck me as odd that I should now be entertaining a couple of deaf-mutes. Peeping cautiously out, however, I found that I had been mistaken in supposing that I had with me a brace of guests. It was Madeline alone who had blown in. She was heading for the piano, and something told me it was her intention to sing old folk songs, a pastime to which, as I have indicated, she devoted not a little of her leisure. She was particularly given to indulgence in this nuisance when her soul had been undergoing an upheaval and required soothing, as of course it probably did at this juncture. My fears were realized. She sang two in rapid succession, and the thought that this sort of thing would be a permanent feature of our married life chilled me to the core. I've always been what you might call allergic to old folk songs, and the older they are, the more I dislike them. Fortunately, before she could start on a third, she was interrupted. Clumping footsteps sounded, and the door handle turned. Heavy breathing made itself heard, and a voice said, Marlin! Spode's voice, husky and emotional. Marlin! He said, I've been looking for you everywhere. Oh, Roderick, how is your eye? Never mind my eye. I didn't come here to talk about eyes. They say a piece of beefsteak reduces the swelling. Not about beefsteaks. Sir Watkin has told me the awful news about you and Worcester. Is it true you're going to marry him? Yes, Roderick, it is true. But you can't love a half-baked, half-witted ass like Worcester. Said Spode, and I thought the remark extremely offensive. Pick your words more carefully, Spode, I might have said, rising and confronting him. However, for one reason or another, I didn't but continued to nestle, and I heard Madeline sigh, unless it was a draught under the sofa. No, Roderick, I do not love him. He does not appeal to the essential me, but I feel it is my duty to make him happy. Paw, said Spode, or something that sounded like that. Why on earth you want to go about making worms like Worcester happy? He loves me, Roderick. You must have seen that dumb, worshipping look in his eyes as he gazes at me. I've something better to do than peer into Worcester's eyes, though I can well imagine they look dumb. We've got to have this thing out, Madeline. I don't understand you, Roderick. You will. Ouch! I think on the cue you will, he must have grabbed her by the wrist, for the word ouch had come through strong and clear, and the suspicion was confirmed when she said he was hurting her. I'm sorry, sorry, said Spode, but I refuse to allow you to ruin your life. You can't marry this man, Wooster. I'm the one you're going to marry. 
I was with him, heart and soul, as the expression is. Nothing would ever make me feel really fond of Roderick Spode, but I liked the way he was talking. A little more of this, I felt, and Bertram would be released from his honourable obligations. I wish he had thought of taking this firm line earlier. I've loved you since you were this high. Not being able to see him, I couldn't ascertain how high that was, but I presumed he must have been holding his hand not far from the floor. A couple of feet, would you say? About that, I suppose. Madeline was plainly moved. I heard her gurgle. I know, Roderick, I know. You guessed my secret. Yes, Roderick, how sad life is. Spur declined to string along with her in this view. Not a bit of it. Life is fine. At least it will be, if you give this blighter Worcester the push and marry me. I have always been devoted to you, Roderick. Well then. Give me time to think. Carry on. Take all the time you need. I don't want to break Bertie's heart. Why not? It would do him good. He loves me so dearly. Nonsense. I don't suppose he has ever loved anything in his life except a dry martini. How can you say that? Did he not come here because he found it impossible to stay away from me? No, he jolly well didn't. Don't let him fool you on that point. He came here to pinch that black amber statuette of your father's. What? It's true. In addition to being half-witted, he's a low thief. That can't be true, Roderick. Of course it's true. His uncle wants the thing for his collection. I heard him plotting with his art on the telephone not half an hour ago. It's going to be pretty hard to get away with it, he was saying. I'll do my best. I'll know how Uncle Tom covets the statuette. He's always stealing things. The very first time I met him in an antique shop in Brompton Road, he was as near as a toucher to getting away with your father's umbrella. A monstrous charge, and one which I can readily refute. He and Pop Bassett and I were, I concede, in the antique shop in Brompton Road to which he had alluded, but the umbrella sequence was purely one of those laughable misunderstandings. Pop Bassett had left the blunt instrument propped against a 17th century chair, and what caused me to take it up was the primeval instinct which makes a man, without an umbrella, as I have happened to be that morning, reach out unconsciously for the nearest one in sight like a flower turning to the sun. The whole thing could have been explained in two words, but they hadn't let me say even one, and the slur had been allowed to rest on me. You shock me, Roderick, said Madeline. Yes, I thought it would make you sit up. If this is really so, if Bertie really is a thief. Well? Naturally, I will have nothing more to do with him, but I cannot believe it. Oh, go and fetch Sir Watkin said Spode. Perhaps you'll believe him. For several minutes after he had clumped out, Madeline must have stood in reverie, for I didn't hear a sound out of her. Then the door opened, and the next thing that came across was a cough, which I had no difficulty in recognizing. Chapter 23 It was that soft cough of Jeeves, which always reminds me of a very old sheep clearing its throat on a distant mountaintop. He coughed at me, if you remember, on the occasion when I first swam into his ken, wearing the alpine hat. It generally signifies disapproval, but I've known it to occur also when he's about to touch on a topic of a delicate nature, and when he spoke I knew that that was what he was going to do now, for there was a sort of hushed note in his voice. 
I wonder if I might have a moment of your time, miss. Of course, Jeeves. It is with reference to Mr. Worcester. Oh, yes. I must begin by saying that I chanced to be passing the door when Lord Sidcup was speaking to you, and inadvertently overheard his lordship's observations on the subject of Mr. Worcester. His lordship has a carrying voice, and I find myself in a somewhat equivocal position, torn between loyalty to my employer and a natural desire to do my duty as a citizen. I don't understand you, Jeeves, said Madeline, which made two of us. He coughed again. I am anxious not to take a liberty, miss, but, if I may speak frankly. Please do. Thank you, miss. His lordship's words seem to confirm a rumour which is circulating in the servants' hall that you are contemplating a matrimonial union with Mr. Worcester. Would it be indiscreet of me if I were to inquire if this was so? Yes, Jeeves, it is quite true. If you will pardon me for saying so, miss, I think you are making a mistake. Well spoken, Jeeves. You are on the right lines, I was saying to myself. And I hope he was going to rub it in. I waited anxiously for Madeline's reply, a little afraid that she would draw herself to full height and dismiss him from her presence. But she didn't. She merely said again that she didn't understand him. If I might explain, miss, I am loath to criticize my employer, but I feel that you should know that he is a kleptomaniac. What? Yes, miss, I had hoped to be able to preserve his little secret as I have always done hitherto, but he has now gone to lengths which I cannot countenance. In going through his effects this afternoon, I discovered this small black figure concealed beneath his underwear. I heard Madeline utter a sound like a dying soda-water fountain. But that belongs to my father. If I may say so, nothing belongs to anyone if Mr. Worcester takes a fancy to it. Then Lord Sidcup was right? Precisely, miss. He said Mr. Worcester tried to steal my father's umbrella. I heard him, and the charge was well-founded. Umbrellas, jewellery, statuettes, they are all grist to Mr. Worcester's mill. I do not think he can help it. It is a form of mental illness. But whether a jury would take that view, I cannot say. Madeline went into the soda siphon routine once more. You mean he might be sent to prison? It is a contingency that seems to me far from remote, miss. Again, I felt that he was on the right lines. His trained senses told him that if there's one thing that puts a girl off marrying a chap, it is the thought that the honeymoon may be spoiled at any moment by the arrival of inspectors at the love nest, come to scoop him in for larceny. No young bride likes that sort of thing. You can't blame her if she finds herself preferring to team up with someone like Spode, who, though a gorilla in fairly human shape, is known to keep strictly on the right side of the law. I could almost hear Madeline's thoughts turning in this direction, and I applauded Jeeves's sound grip on the psychology of the individual, as he calls it. Of course I could see that all this wasn't going to make my position in the bass at home any too good, but there are times when only the surgeon's knife will serve and I had the sustaining thought that if ever I got out from behind this sofa, I could sneak off to where my car waited, champing at the bit, and drive off Londonwards, without stopping to say goodbye and thanks for a delightful visit. 
this would obviate. Is that it? Obviate all the unpleasantness. Madeline continued shaken. Oh, dear, oh, dear. She said. Yes, miss. This has come as a great shock. I can readily appreciate it, miss. Have you known this for long? Ever since I entered Mr. Worcester's employment. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, thank you, Jeeves. Not at all, miss. I think Jeeves must have shivered off after this, for silence fell and nothing happened except that my nose began to tickle. I would have given ten quid to have been able to sneeze, but this, of course, was outside the range of practical politics. I just crouched there, thinking of this and that, and after quite a while the door opened once more, this time to admit something in the nature of a mob scene. I could see three pairs of shoes and deduced that they were those of Spode, Pop Basson, and Plank. Spode, it will be recalled, had gone to fetch Pop, and Plank presumably had come along for the ride, hoping, no doubt, for something moist at the journey's end. Spode was the first to speak, and his voice rang with a triumph that comes into voices of suitors who have caught a dangerous rival bending. Here we are, he said. I've brought Sir Watkin to support my statement that Worcester is a low sneak thief who goes about snopping up everything that isn't nailed down. You agree, Sir Watkin? Of course I do, Roderick. It's only a month or so ago that he and his aunt stole my cow creamer. What is a cow creamer? Asked Plank. A silver jug, one of the gems of my collection. They got away with it, did they? They did. Ah, said Plank. Then in that case, I think I'll have a whiskey and soda. Pop Bassett was warming to his theme. His voice rose above the hissing of Plank's siphon. And it was only by the mercy of Providence that Worcester didn't make off with my umbrella that day in the Brompton Road. If that young man has one defect more marked than another, it is that he appears to be totally ignorant of the distinction between meum and tuum. He came up before me in my court once, I remember, charged with having stolen a policeman's helmet, and it is a lasting regret to me that I merely fined him five pounds. Mistaken kindness, said Spode. So I have always felt, Roderick. A sharper lesson might have done him all the good in the world. Never does and let these fellows off lightly, said Plank. I had a servant chap in Mozambique who used to help himself to my cigars, and I foolishly overlooked it because he assured me he had got religion, and everything would be quite all right from then on. It wasn't a week later he skipped out, taking with him a box of Havanas and my false teeth, which he sold to one of the native chiefs in the neighborhood. It cost me a case of Trajan and two string of beads to get them back. Severity's the only thing. Iron hand. Anything else is mistaken for weakness. Madeline gave a sob. At least it sounded like a sob. But, Daddy... Yes? I don't think Bertie can help himself. My dear child, it is precisely his habit of helping himself to everything he can lay his hands on that we are criticizing. I mean, he's a kleptomaniac. Eh? Who told you that? Jeeves. Well, that's odd. How did the subject come up? He told me when he gave me this. He found it in Bertie's room. He was very worried about it. There was a spot of silence, of the stunned nature, I imagine. Then Pop Bassett said, Good heavens, and Spode said, Good lord. 
And Plank said, Why, that's that little thingamagummy I sold you past it, isn't it? Madeline gave another sob, and my nose began to tickle again. Well, this is astounding, said Pop. He found it in Worcester's room, you say? Yes, concealed beneath his underwear. Pop Bassett uttered a sound like the wind going through a dying duck. How right you were, Roderick. You said his motive in coming here was to steal this, but how he got into the collection room I cannot understand. These fellows have their methods. Seems to be a great demand for that thing, said Plank. There was a young slab of damnation with a criminal face round at my place only yesterday trying to sell it to me. Worcester. No, it wasn't Worcester. My fellow's name was Alpine Joe. Worcester would naturally adopt a pseudonym. I suppose he would. I never thought of that. Well, after this, said Pop Bassett. Yes, after this, said Spode. You're certainly not going to marry the man, Madeline. He's worse than Finknottle. Uh, who's Finknottle? Asked Plank. The one who eloped with Stoker, said Pop. Who's Stoker? Asked Plank. I don't think I've ever come across a fellow with a greater thirst for information. The cook. Ah, yes, I remember you telling me. Knew what he was doing, that chap. I'm strongly opposed to anyone marrying anybody, but if you're going to marry someone, you unquestionably save something from the wreck by marrying a woman who knows what to do with a joint of beef. There was a fellow I knew in the Federated Malay States who... It probably would have been a diverting anecdote, but Spode didn't let him get with it any further. Addressing Madeline, he said, What you're going to do is marry me, and I don't want any argument. How about it, Madeline? Yes, Roderick, I will be your wife. Spode uttered a whoop which made my nose tickle worse than ever. That's the stuff. That's how I like to hear you talk. Come on out into the garden. I have much to say to you. I imagine at this juncture he must have folded her in his embrace and hustled her out, for I heard the door close. And as it did, so Pop Bassett uttered a whoop somewhat similar in its intensity to the one that had proceeded from Spode's lips. He was patently boops-a-daisy, and one could readily understand why. A father whose daughter, after nearly marrying Gussie Finknottle, and then nearly marrying me, sees the light and hooks onto a prosperous member of the British aristocracy is entitled to rejoice. I didn't like Spode, and would have been glad at any time to see a Peruvian matron spike him in the leg with her dagger, but there was no denying that he was hot stuff matrimonially. Lady Sidcup, said Pop, rolling the words around in his tongue like a vintage port. Who's Lady Sidcup? Asked Plank, anxious as always to keep abreast. My daughter will be shortly. One of the oldest titles in England. That was Lord Sidcup who just left us. I thought his name was Roderick. His Christian name is Roderick. Ah, said Plank. Now I've got it. Now I have the old picture. Your daughter was to have married someone called Finknottle. Yes. Then she was to have married this chap Worcester, or Alpine Joe, as the case may be. Yes. And now she's going to marry Lord Sidcup. Yes. Clear as crystal, said Plank. I knew I should get it threshed out in time, simply a matter of concentration and elimination. You approved of this marriage? 
as far as one can approve of any marriage, then? I most certainly do. Then I think this calls for another whiskey and soda. I will join you, said Pop Bassett. At this point, unable to hold it back any longer, I sneezed. I knew there was something behind that sofa, said Plank, rounding it and subjecting me to the sort of look he had once given native chiefs who couldn't grasp the rules of rugby football. Odd sounds came from that direction. Good God, it's Alpine Joe. It's Worcester. Who's Worcester? Oh, you told me, didn't you? What steps do you propose to take? I have rung for Butterfield. Who's Butterfield? My butler. What do you want a butler for? To tell him to bring oats. Who's oats? Our local policeman. He's having a glass of whiskey in the kitchen. Whiskey? Said Plank thoughtfully. And as if reminded of something, went to the side table. The door opened. Oh, Butterfield, will you tell Oates to come here? Very good, Sir Watkin. Bit out of condition, that chap, said Plank, eyeing Butterfield's retreating back. Wants a few games of rugger to put him in shape. What are you going to do about this Alpine Joe fellow? You going to charge him? I certainly am. No doubt he assumed that I would shrink from causing a scandal, but he was wrong. I shall let the law take its course. Quite right. Soak him to the utmost limit. You're a justice of the peace, aren't you? I am, and intend to give him twenty-eight days in the second division. Uh, not sixty? Nice round number, sixty. You couldn't make it six months, I suppose. I fear not. No, I imagine you have a regular tariff. Oh, well, twenty-eight days is better than nothing. Police Constable Oates, said Butterfield in the doorway. Chapter 24 I don't know why it is, but there's something about being hauled off to a police bin that makes you feel a bit silly. At least that's how it's always affected me. I mean, there you are, you and the arm of the law, toddling along side by side, and you feel that in a sense, he's your host, and you want to show an interest and try to draw him out. But it's so difficult to hit on anything in the nature of an exchange of ideas. And conversation never really flows. I remember at my private school, the one I won a prize for scripture knowledge at, the Reverend Aubrey Upjohn, the top brass, used to take us one by one for an educational walk on Sunday afternoons, and I always found it hard to sparkle when my turn came to step out at his side. It was the same on this occasion. When I accompanied Constable O's to the village coop, it's no good pretending the thing went with a swing because it didn't. Probably, if I'd been one of the top notchers, about to do a ten-year stretch for burglary or arson or whatnot, it would have been different. But I was only one of the small fry who get twenty-eight days in the second division, and I couldn't help thinking the officer was looking down on me. Not actually sneering, perhaps, but aloof in his manner, as if feeling I wasn't much of a cop to get his teeth into. And, of course, there was another thing. Speaking of my earlier visit to Totley Towers, I mentioned that when Top Bassett had murdered me in my room, he stationed the local police force on the lawn below to see I didn't nip out the window. That local police force was the same Oates, and as it was raining like the Dickens at that time, no doubt the episode had rankled. Only a very sunny constable can look with an indulgent eye on the fellow responsible for his getting the nastiest cold in the head of his career. At any rate, he showed himself now a man of few words, though good at locking people up in cells. There was only one in the Tutley in the World Emporium, and I had it all myself, a cosy little apartment 
with a window, not barred but too small to get out of, a grill in the door, a plank bed, and that rather powerful aroma of drunks and disorderlies which you always find in these homes from home. Whether it was superior or inferior to the one I had been given at Barsha Street, I wasn't able to decide. Not much in it either way, it seemed to me. To say that when I turned in on the plank bed, I fell into a dreamless sleep would be deceiving my public. I passed somewhat a restless night. I could have sworn indeed that I didn't drop off at all, but I suppose I must have done, because the next thing I knew sunlight was coming in through the window, and mine host was bringing me breakfast. I got outside it with an appetite unusual for me at such an early hour, and at the conclusion of the meal I fished out an old envelope, and did what I have sometimes done before when the bludgeonings of fate were up and about to any extent, viz. to make a list of credits and debits, as I believe Robinson Crusoe used to, the idea being to see whether I was ahead or behind the game at the moment of going to the press. The final score worked out as follows. Credit. Not at all a bad breakfast, that. Coffee quite good, I was surprised. Debit. Don't always be thinking of your stomach, you jailbird. Credit. Who's a jailbird? Debit. You're a jailbird. Credit. Well, yes, I suppose I am, if you care to put it that way. But I'm innocent. My hands are clean. Debit. More than your face is. Credit. Not looking my best, what? Debit. You look like something the cat brought in. Credit. Well, a bath will put that right. Debit. And you'll get one in prison. Credit. You really think it'll come to that? Debit. Well, you heard what Pop Bassett said. Credit. I wonder what it's like doing 28 days. Hitherto, I've always just come in for the night. Debit. You'll hate it. It'll bore you stiff. Credit. I don't know so much. They give you a kick of soap and a hymn book, don't they? Debit. What's the good of a kick of soap and a hymn book? Credit. I'll be able to come up with some sort of indoor game with them. And don't forget, I've not got to marry Madeline Bassett. Let's hear what you have to say about that. And the debit account didn't utter. I'd baffled it. Yes, I felt as I hunted around in case there might be a crumb of bread which I had overlooked that amply compensated me for the vicissitudes I was undergoing. And I had been musing along these lines for a while, getting more and more reconciled to my lot, when a silvery voice spoke, making me jump like a startled grasshopper. I couldn't think where it was coming from at first, and speculated for a moment on the possibility of it being my guardian angel. Though I had always thought of him, I don't know why, as being the male sex. Then I saw something not unlike a human face at the grill, and a closer inspection told me it was stiffy. I hello there cordially and expressed some surprise at finding her on the premises. I wouldn't have thought Oates would let you in. It's not visitor's day, is it? She explained that the zealous officer had gone up to the house to see her uncle Walken, and that she had sneaked in when he had legged it. Oh, Bertie, she said. I wish I could slip you a file. What would I do with a file? Saw through the bars, of course, you ass. There aren't any bars. Oh, aren't there? That's a difficulty. We'll have to let it go, then. Have you had breakfast? I just finished. Was it all right? Fairly toothsome. I'm glad to hear that, because I'm weighed down with remorse. You are? Why? Use the loaf. If I hadn't pinched that statuette thing, none of this would have happened. 
Oh, I wouldn't worry. But I do worry. Should I tell Uncle Walken that you're innocent because I was the guilty party? You ought to have your name cleared. I put the B on this suggestion with the greatest promptitude. Certainly not. Don't dream of it. But don't you want your name cleared? Not at the expense of you taking the rap. Uncle Watkin wouldn't send me to the chokey. I dare say not, but Stinker would learn all and would be shocked to the core. Oh, I didn't think of that. Think of it now. He wouldn't be able to help himself asking if it's a prudent move for a vicar to link his lot with yours. Doubts, that's what he'd have, and qualms. It's not as if you were going to be a gangster's mole. The gangster would be all for you, swiping everything in sight, and would encourage you with a word and a gesture. But it's different with Stinker. When he marries you, he'll want you to take charge of the parish funds, apprise him of the facts, and he won't have an easy moment. Oh, yes, I see what you mean. Yes, you do have a point there. Picture his jumpiness if he found you near the Sunday offertory box. No, secrecy and silence is the only course. She sighed a bit, as if her conscience was troubling her, but she saw the force of my reasoning. I suppose you're right, but I do hate the idea of you doing time. Oh, there are compensations. Such as? I'm saved from the scaffold. Oh, I see what you mean. You get out of marrying Madeline. Exactly. And as I remember telling you once, I am implying nothing derogatory to Madeline when I say that the thought of being united to her in the bonds of holy wedlock was one that gave your old friend shivers down his spine. The fact is in no way to discredit her. I should feel just the same about marrying many of the world's noblest women. There are certain females whom one respects and admires and reveres, but only from a distance. And it is into this group that Madeline belongs. I was about to develop this theme, with possibly a reference to those folk songs when a gruff voice interrupted our tete-a-tete. If you call a thing a tete-a-tete, when the two of you are on opposite sides of an iron grill. It was Constable Oates, returning from his excursion. Stiffy's presence displeased him, and he spoke austerely. What's all this? He demanded. What's all what? Reposted Stiffy with spirit, and I remember thinking that she rather had him there. It's against regulations to talk to the prisoner, miss. Oates, said Stiffy. You are an ass. This was profoundly true, but it seemed to annoy the officer. He resented the charge and said so, and Stiffy said she didn't want any back chat from him. You road company rasers make me sick. I was only trying to cheer him up. Seemed to me that the officer gave a bitter snort, and a moment later he revealed why he had done so. Me that wants cheering up. He said morosely. I've just seen Sir Watkin. He says he's not pressing the charge. What? I cried. What? Yip Stiffy. That's what, said the constable, and you could see that while there was sunshine above, there was none in his heart. I could sympathize with him, of course. Naturally, nothing makes a member of the force sicker than to have a criminal get away from him. He was in rather the same position as some crocodile on the Zambezi or some puma in Brazil would have been if it had earmarked plank for its lunch and had seen him skin up a high tree. Shackling the police, that's what I call it. He said, and I think he spat on the floor. I couldn't see him, of course, but I was aware of a spit-like sound. Steffi whooped well-pleased, and I whooped myself, if I remember correctly. For all the bold front I had been putting up, 
I had never in my heart really liked the idea of rotting for 28 days in a dungeon cell. Prison is all right for a night, but you don't want to go overdoing the thing. Then what are we waiting for? Said Stiffy. Get a move on, officer. Fling wide those gates. Oates flung them, not attempting to conceal his chagrin and disappointment, and I passed with Stiffy into the great world outside the prison walls. Goodbye, Oates, I said, as we left, for one always likes to do the courteous thing. It's been nice meeting you. How are Mrs. Oates and the little ones? His only reply was a sound like a hippopotamus taking its foot out of the mud on a riverbank, and I saw Stiffy frown, as though his manner offended her. You know... She said as we reached the open spaces, we really ought to do something about Oates. Something that would teach him that we're not put into this world for pleasure alone. I can't suggest what offhand, but if we put our heads together, we could think of something. You ought to stay on here, Bertie, and help me bring his ginger hairs in sorrow to the grave. I raised an eyebrow. As the guest of your Uncle Watkin? You could muck in with Harold. There's a spare room at his cottage. Sorry, no. You won't stay on? I will not. I intend to put as many miles as possible in as short a time as possible between Totley and the world and myself. And it's no good thing you're using that expression, lily-livered poltroon, because I am adamant. She made what I believe is called a mew, instead by pushing the lips out and drawing them in again. I thought it wouldn't be any use asking you. No spirit. That's your trouble, Bertie. No enterprise. Well... I'll just have to get Harold to do it. And as I stood shuddering at the picture her words conjured up, she pushed off, exhibiting high dudgeon. And I was still speculating as to what tureen of soup she was planning to land the sainted pinker in and hoping that he would have enough sense to stay out of it when Jeeves drove up in the car, a welcome sight. Good morning, sir, he said. I trust you slept well. Fitfully, Jeeves. Those plank beds are not easy on the fleshy parts. So I would be disposed to imagine, sir. And your disturbed night has left you ruffled. I am sorry to see. You are far from Swanay. I could, I suppose, have said something about way down the Swanay River, but I didn't. My mind was occupied with deep thoughts. I was in a pensive mood. You know, Jeeves, one lives and learns. Sir? I mean, this episode has been a bit of an eye-opener to me. It has taught me a lesson. I see now what a mistake one makes in labelling someone as a ruddy God-help-us just because he normally behaves like a ruddy God-help-us. Look closely, and we find humanity in the unlikeliest of places. A broad-minded view, sir. Take this Sir W. Bassett. In my haste, I have always penciled him in as a hellhound without a single redeeming quality. But what do I find? He has this softer side to him. Having got Bertram out on a limb, he does not, as one would have expected, proceed to sort off, but tempers justice with mercy, declining to press the charge. It has touched me a good deal to discover that under that forbidding exterior there lies a heart of gold. Why are you looking at me like a stuffed frog, Jeeves? Don't you agree with me? Not altogether, sir, when you attribute Sir Watkins' leniency to sheer goodness of heart. There were inducements. I don't dig you, Jeeves. I made it a condition that you be set at liberty, sir. My inability to dig him became intensified. He seemed to be talking through the back of his neck, the last thing you desire in a personal attendant. How do you mean condition? Condition of what? 
of my entering his employment, sir. I should mention that during my visit to Brinkley Court, Sir Watkin very kindly expressed appreciation of the manner in which I perform my duties, and made me an offer to leave your service and enter his. This offer, conditional upon your release, I have accepted, sir. The police station at Totley in the World is situated in the main street of that village, and from where we were standing I had a view of the establishments of a butcher, a baker, a grocer, and a publican licensed to sell tobacco, ales, and spirits. And as I heard these words, this butcher, baker, grocer, and publican seemed to pirouette before my eyes as if afflicted by St. Vitus's dance. "'You're leaving me?' I gasped, scarcely able to be my E. The corner of his mouth twitched. He seemed about to smile, but of course thought better of it. "'Only temporarily, sir.' "'Again I was unable to dig him. "'Temporarily?' "'I think it more than possible that after perhaps a week or so "'differences will arise between Sir Watkin and myself, "'compelling me to resign my position. "'In that event, if you are not already suited, sir, "'I shall be most happy to return to your employment.' "'I saw it all. It was a ruse, and by no means the worst of them.' His brain, enlarged by constant helpings of fish, he had seen the way and found a formula acceptable to all parties. The mist cleared before my eyes, and the butcher, baker, grocer, and publican, licensed to sell tobacco, ales, and spirits, switched back again to what is called the status quo. A rush of emotion filled me. Jeeves, I said, and if my voice shook, what of it? We Worcesters are but human. Others abide our question, but you don't. As the fellow said, I wish there was something I could do to repay you. He coughed, that sheep-like cough of his. There does chance to be a favour it is within your power to bestow upon me, sir. Name it, Jeeves. Ask of me what you will, even unto half my kingdom. If you could see your way to abandoning your alpine hat, sir. I ought to have seen it coming. That cough should have told me. But I hadn't, and the shock was severe. I don't mind admitting that for an instant I reeled. You'd go that far, would you? I said, chewing the lower lip. It was merely a suggestion, sir. I took the hat off and gazed at it. The morning sunlight played on it. It had never looked so blue, its feathers so pink. I suppose you know you're breaking my heart. I am sorry, sir. I sighed, but as I have said, the Worcesters can take it. Very well, G, so be it. I gave him the hat. It made me feel like a father reluctantly throwing his child from the sledge to divert the attention of the pursuing wolf pack, as I believe happens all the time in Russia in the winter months. You propose to burn this alpine hat, Jeeves? No, sir. I intend to present it to Mr. Butterfield. He thinks it will be of assistance to him in his courtship. His what? Mr. Butterfield is courting a widowed lady in the village, sir. This surprised me. But surely he was 104 his last birthday. He is well stricken in years, yes, sir, but nonetheless. There's life in the old dog yet, eh? Precisely, sir. My heart melted. I ceased to think of self. And it just occurred to me that in the circumstances I would be unable to conclude my visit by tipping Butterfield. The hat would fill in the gap. All right, Jeeves, give him the lid, and heaven's speed is wooing. You might tell him that from me. I will make a point of doing so, sir. Thank you very much. Not at all, Jeeves. Not at all. 
The end! This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope you've enjoyed this Uvila audio presentation of Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves by P.G. Wodehouse. As with our previous Bertie and Jeeves presentations, the opening and closing themes were written by the BBC composer Nigel Hess. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at Uvila Audio at uvilaaudio.com. You can become a Facebook fan of Uvila Audio. Just do a search for Uvila Audio on Facebook. We are listed on Podcast Alley. Please vote for the adult or kids' bookcasts so that we can get more listeners. We are also listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcast there for free. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvila Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvilaaudio.com. If you like our podcasts, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal link. All monies will go toward maintaining the podcast in the future. Here are the final results of the Facebook poll. The majority of listeners chose the Andrea Norton classic SF novel, The Stars Are Ours, as the next book that Uvula will present. Stars is long out of print, and apparently getting an old copy is difficult to do. The Stars Are Ours, written in 1954, is the first novel of Andrea Norton's Astra duology. Mankind has reached the Moon, Mars, and Venus, but found little to justify terraforming, so interplanetary flight was used only for scientific research. However, three space stations were built to provide a number of services, including astronomical and meteorological observations. One of these stations was invaded by unidentified armed men who turned certain installations into weapons which they unleashed against the planet. A major portion of the planet was completely devastated and the loss of life incalculable. The novel follows the events a decade or so later which lead to mankind finally leaving the solar system and reaching the stars. Norton's story contains several of the characteristic signatures of her space adventures, including special talents and aliens. This novel shows the beginning of a galactic-wide human civilization. The story is definitely a little dated, but it is a pleasure to read, as is its sequel, Starborn. We think you'll enjoy Uvila's presentation. From all of us at Uvila Audio, we thank you. <laughs>